Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, which is designed to give you the opportunity for any spiritual recovery that's necessary to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful that we know that you control history and that no matter how chaotic and no matter how insane things look in the world around us, we know that you are working out your plan and purposes in human history and that our mission is to represent you, represent uh, your throne of grace, represent the Lord Jesus Christ in this earth and the gospel, and that is our task to be an example to those around us and to the angels. And, Father, we pray that as we study this evening, we'll be challenged by your word in a very difficult area of application, but that we might also recognize that we only do this because we are enabled by you, for with you all things are possible. And, Father, we pray that we might be responsive to the challenge of your word this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we get started in our study tonight in Romans, I wanted to just give you a little bit of an update or review on some things that I learned over the last uh, couple of days. Uh, I was invited by uh, some friends to go to a GENSA conference. GENSA stands for the Jewish International Security Association, which was founded by a uh, Houstonian, I believe, Tom... What's his last name? Newman. Newman. I never can remember that name for some reason. Tom Newman. And he's had some health problems, whatever, and they're transferring the baton of leadership to... uh, uh, younger man, I think he looks like he's around 40, Michael Makovsky. I've known Mike Makovsky for four or five years because I picked up a book called Churchill's Promised Land, which he wrote, and I highly recommend, as a study dealing with the whole history of Zionism. And he was one of the speakers last night. We met at, the, uh, uh, at a private home over in the memorial area, and there were about 80 people there. Uh, the two speakers, the two primary speakers that were there were uh, Ambassador John Bolton and Michael Makovsky. And then because this was also done under the auspices of the office of the Lieutenant Governor of Texas, uh, David Dewhurst spoke briefly. David was there. And then there were um, a couple of other notables there who have a foundation and background with Jensa. Apparently, uh, David Dewhurst was the assistant director back in the 80s and was very much involved with Tom Newman when he founded and started Jensa, as was uh, former Congressman Tom DeLay, uh, who was also present last last night. 
some others that were there were the former uh, chairman of the board for the uh, U.S. Uh, for the National Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., several other uh, very influential uh, players in pro-Israel politics in this country. And so it was, it was a very significant crowd that had quite an education. The people who hosted the event, and I'm hoping to uh, – well, one of the speakers that was also present last night was Yoram Edinger, who spoke here back in August, and Yoram spoke at the event this morning. But Yoram told me that I needed to get the video from the event before I got there. There were two things last night, apparently. There was a dinner for certain people, and the host who had this in his home spoke a good bit about Ukraine. There were two things going on in the topic, the thread of conversation through last night's events and today's events that were near and dear to my heart and our hearts, and that was, number one, uh, Israel and Iran issue, and number two, the intersection of this Ukrainian issue and Russia with what's going on also with Iran and how those things are uh, somewhat intersecting. So it was very informative. Uh, very con the, the views of all of the speakers were fairly conservative. And I'm just going to review without necessarily attributing to a speaker who said what, because that's not that important, and I don't know that I can properly sort out who said what. But I wrote down some basic key observations just to give you some basic bullet points of what came out of the uh, of the basic pre presentations. Uh, the first point that uh, I would emphasize is that was stated last night by both speakers, and they supported each other in this, and that is that after uh, the, the way the U.S. has handled the situation in Libya, Egypt, Syria, and Ukraine, uh, we have learned that the U.S. cannot be trusted to carry out its word and to fulfill its obligations to its allies. And we have also learned, and the international community has learned this as well. No one can trust this government to do or to undergo its, its, uh, its uh, obligations. One of the things that the host spoke about last night, because he was originally from Kharkov in Ukraine, he was a refusenik which meant a group of Jews that were trying to get out of Russia in the late 70s and early 80s would not be granted uh, exit visas, and so they were called refuseniks. And he was uh, among that group before he finally made his way, to, he and his wife made his way to Houston. And he spoke a little bit about this, and in, uh, it goes back to the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, which was uh, affirmed by uh, then-Ukrainian President uh, Leonid Kuchma, who is just as bad as Yanukovych. In fact, he probably mentored Yanukovych, along with Bill Clinton, uh, Yeltsin, Boris Yeltsin, and John Major, who was the prime minister in Britain at the time. And these countries uh, uh, agreed and promised to respect the independence and sovereignty of the then-existing borders. That's the exact wording of the Budapest Memorandum of the then-existing borders of Ukraine. That includes Crimea and that they would refrain from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of Ukraine. And so when Putin uh, sent his troops into Crimea, he violated this. It was on the basis of the 1994 Budapest Memorandum that the Ukrainians gave up all of their nuclear weapons. And one of the things that has come out of history, if we learn anything from recent history, is you're going to survive if you have nuclear weapons and you're going to be... Uh, you're going to be a victim 
to be attacked if you don't have nuclear weapons. And this is a lesson that the Ukrainians have, have just recently learned. But what has happened because of this violation of international law by, by Russia, and the West is incapable of doing anything, uh, they have been basically uh, rendered impotent due to the economy and due to uh, overcommitment of military forces all around the world, especially the U.S. In, 19, uh, in 2008, when Putin went into Georgia, and you all need to get some maps out. I should have put a map up here, but you all need to get maps out and really become familiar with this area. We all do. One of the problems Americans have is that we're geographically impoverished, and we don't understand the, how these things relate and why they are significant. And they are significant because they impact, everything's global now, and this impacts economics, it impacts uh, trade, it impacts many things that come right home to roost, even though they're not domestic policies. We can't afford as, can't, cannot afford as Americans to be myopic and just focus on domestic policies, which is the history of this country. We just want to sit around and worry about what's in our checking account and make sure that we got a good job and a paycheck and health care and everything, nothing else matters. And all of those things that I just mentioned that are domestic policy are really contingent upon uh, where we sit in the world in terms of trade, the value of the dollar, and many, many other factors. But the, um, the, the impotence of the United States, failure to act, has basically rendered us uh, a fool in the eyes of the world. And in terms of the uh, relation to Iran, this means that our enemies have no reason to fear us. We can draw red lines in the sand all day long, but every time we let somebody cross them and cross them and cross them and cross them, pretty soon nobody's going to pay attention. So our uh, enemies have no reason to fear us, and our friends have no reason to trust us. Second thing that came out of a very interesting speaker today, an Orthodox Jew stands about 6'4", thin, long beard, wears a bowler. I've, never, I've seen all kinds of hats in the old city. Those of you who've been there know what I'm talking about. I've never seen a bowler. Afterwards, when I was introduced to him, I said, I'm really curious. I know that all the different hats indicate different Polish villages that different Rebbe's came from, so, but I never saw a Rebbe wearing a bowler. And, and he took it off and boinged it off the table, and it was a riding bowler that's a helmet. He said, this way it doesn't get crushed when I'm flying on the airplane. How practical. Also looks distinctive. And this guy it was just a brilliant uh, security analyst. His specialty that he was going to talk about and never did today was on uh, oil field security and oil and energy security, and he talked about all these other things because that's what everybody else was talking about. And he was uh, just a little bit about his background. He was called in to brief the Joint Chiefs of Staff on cybersecurity. Get, get that picture in your mind. Joint Chiefs of Staff all in their regalia, medals, military uniforms, and an Orthodox Jew with his frock coat, long beard, bowler, prayer shawl, briefing the Joint Chiefs of Staff on cybersecurity two weeks after 9-11. And uh, he was uh, quite interesting and quite conservative, affirmed at least three times while he was speaking that he was a social conservative and a fiscal conservative and a political conservative, and that's the only way it works is if you have all three. So he, uh, he spoke, and his first point was that 
Evil must be recognized. If we're not dealing with our enemies and if we're not dealing with the world on the basis that we accept the reality of the existence of evil, then we're living in a fantasy world and we're going to be destroyed. And then he built the rest of his case upon that. It was interesting that earlier the president of University of St. Thomas here in Houston, who's a retired major general, uh, gave and had been responsible for carrying the atomic uh, nuclear uh, information, missile launch codes and everything for President Reagan, gave a 30-minute um, uh, talk about President Reagan where he pointed out that uh, Ronald Reagan had identified the USSR against the advice of all of his advisors as the evil empire. and But it was the use of that term that really spoke to the heart of Gorbachev, spoke to the heart of numerous Russians and to a number of Americans who realized when he did that, when he identified the USSR as an evil empire, they knew that, they, that there was somebody in, in America who understood the, the, the real issue and that their days were numbered. And I believe, and I've said this since, since uh, 9-11, that when President Bush came out and identified the axis of evil, that this is what caused the left to hate him so much because as soon as you identified their, their actions as coming out of an of a absolutely immoral position of evil, which runs completely counter to their whole relativistic mentality, then you have challenged everything in their worldview. That's why they hated him so much. It wasn't just because of individual policies. They hated him because he challenged their core worldview, their their whole spiritual, atheistic, secular outlook on life where there is no such thing as evil. A third thing that came out of the the talks is that since the broker deal with Iran back in September that that, uh, the U.S. had brokered that was supposed to give us six months, uh, that Iran has gained at least an extra $12 billion in revenue they wouldn't have already had. Probably by the time it's up at, in June, it will be uh, another $5 billion in income. But just in case you missed it, I did, it's already been announced by whoever that it's not enough time, so we're going to have to extend the deal at least another six months, which just gives the Iranians more and more time to get more and more money. We had them on the ropes in terms of the sanctions because they were they were beginning to starve to death because they didn't have income. Now they've got uh, plenty of income coming in. Fourth point, the 28 nations in the EU are already fragmenting and uh, the EU is on the ropes and we don't know how much longer it's going to last, but, but basically Germany and, and Austria are, are carrying the EU and they're regretting it. There's a lot of anger and resentment from the Germans towards the rest of Europe. Southern Europe is in massive unemployment. Uh, Spain, southern Italy, Greece... Uh, a couple of other areas have unemployment 20%. Some have unemployment 25%. They're in deep depression uh, already, and they're losing businesses to the point where it's going to be extremely difficult, if at all possible, for them to recover. And when we read about Lady Catherine Ashton negotiating with the Russians over Ukraine, that's a name you need to recognize. She's gone to Israel several times. She's a virulent anti-Zionist and anti-Semite. Uh, what is she bargaining with when she talks to Putin? 
Europe doesn't have anything. There's nothing that Europe has to threaten them with. There's nothing that Europe has to offer them. So when we hear that Catherine Ashton has gone to talk to the Ukrainians and talk to the Russians, what's her, what's her bargaining position? There is none. Another point, which I thought was interesting because I hadn't thought of it in these terms, but a couple of different speakers addressed it this way. Yoram was one who didn't really think that Iran was that close to producing a, a, a bomb. Um, a couple of others did as well. They, they used the analogy that, you can, that in, in terms of enriching uranium, you can refine gasoline all day long, but that doesn't mean you're going to build a car. And the, Uran- the Iranians are uh, enriching uranium like crazy, but unless they have help uh, outside of Iran, they don't have the capacity, uh, they don't believe, to produce the, the weapon system needed to carry the weapon unless they um, can, can do that. Uh, they're, they're probably not a threat. But guess what? This morning or late, late yesterday, the Russian foreign minister had a veiled threat that if Obama continues the sanctions against Russia for the actions in Crimea, then um, they might rethink their, uh, their commitment to sanctions against Iran and everything else related to Iran. So if the Russians were to help Iran, then we would be in a world of hurt. And that leads to my next point, uh, which uh, I think it was the last spe- speaker, Henry, I think his name, Henry Lahav or something like that. Uh, he said, it's not, and a couple of other speakers kind of alluded to this, a lot of people think that, that what's going on right now has a lot of similarities to 1938 when uh, the Nazis went into the Sudetenland and then into Czechoslovakia. Uh, he says it's not 1938. 1938, you had one major evil empire, which was the Nazis. You had the Italians and you had the Japanese, which uh, were not that big of a threat to the West, at least. Um, but he said, today, we don't. Japan's been replaced by China, which is much more to be feared than the Japanese. We have Iran and we have Russia. Uh, the connection of Iran, Russia, and China together is a much bigger threat than what we've uh, faced before. So it's not 1938, he said. It's much, much worse. And then seventh point is that, uh, which I thought also is an interesting observation or opinion, is that Putin is very likely to keep out of eastern Ukraine, uh, despite the fact that due to our satellites, we know that they've amassed 80,000 troops on the border. They're waving, they're, they're making a threat. But if he goes in and he carves off those provinces in eastern Ukraine, this was his reasoning. I don't know if he's right or not. I'm just telling you. Uh, if he carves off those eastern provinces and leaves the rest of Ukraine, then uh, he's going to leave a, a parliament in, in Kiev that is purely anti-Russian. If he leaves the pro-Russian, leaves it alone, and the pro-Russian provinces are still part of of Ukraine, then they will elect pro-Russian parliament members, and you contribute to more and more chaos and continued destabilization of Ukraine, in which case Ukraine won't move to the West. It will stay neutral, and that's Russian's whole objective, is to keep Ukraine there and not as a... a, um, uh, ally of the West. 
That goes to another point related to the problem with the United States policy is that at the end of Bush's era, there was a big move to, I think, uh, the, the Baltic states, Latonia, uh, uh, Latvia, Estonia, and um, Lithuania joined, the, uh, joined um, NATO. There was a push for Ukraine to join NATO, but then Russia was making such a big stink about it that the, that the Europeans backed off. This was a time of the when um, uh, Barack Obama was elected president, and they dropped the ball. They should have gone back and continued to push that because the idea is if we can pull Ukraine into the Western orbit, and that pushes the borders of Russia back even, even, even further. So they've just completely dropped the ball. They have no interest in foreign affairs whatsoever because their whole objective is to remake America, to redo American culture and change uh, American socially, and they really don't care what goes on in the rest of the world. It's not on their radar. The inner sanctum that makes most of the decisions in the White House has very little foreign uh, policy experience because it doesn't really matter to them. What matters to them is is irreversibly changing uh, American culture. So what we're left with is the West is completely impotent. We can't do anything if we wanted to do anything. Uh, it's too far away. Ukraine is right on Russia's doorstep. The uh, uh, cha- uh, supply chain would be far too long, many other problems. So uh, there's nothing we can actually do about Ukraine. Mother Russia is now on the rise. There's nothing the West can do about it, even if we wanted to. And yet this is going to be the future that will challenge us. Some of us remember that when the Soviet Union broke up in the early 90s, uh, we had a pastor that very clearly predicted that the Russian bear was wounded but not down, and it would be back, and it's coming back under, under Putin. The last thing to really lift your spirits this evening is that a nuclear, for, for most of all these speakers, they agreed, a nuclear Iran is a foregone conclusion unless the Israelis do something. And the Israelis recognize, as does everybody else, that if they're going to do anything about it, they're going to do it without us. And they're not even going to tell us they're going to do it at the time they're going to do it because they can't trust the United States anymore. And that's the only way we're going to stop a nuclear Iran is if the Israelis do it. And they've been working on lots of ways to see if they can they can possibly do it. Now, having <clears throat> brought all that to your attention, I want to bring a little scripture to your attention related to this before we get into our Romans passage. We have an election coming up this year, and it's a vital election. It's a midterm election, and it's important for us to throw the Democrats out of office. That is my opinion. We need to throw the Democrats out of office. The Democrats fight lockstep. You don't ever hear Democrats calling other Democrats dinos. Republicans need a leader. They need a strategy, and Republicans need to pull together despite differences because party really does matter when you get into Washington. Party politics really does matter. And if we continue as Republicans, as conservatives, if we continue to be fragmented, then we will be rolled over once again by people who want to destroy this country and who are operating on evil belief systems and evil uh, presuppositions. But fortunately... History is controlled by the Lord Jesus Christ and God. And we need to be involved in politics, not because we trust man. 
but because that's our responsibility under our Constitution. As citizens of the United States, it is part of our responsibility to be knowledgeable voters and to be involved in this civic process to whatever degree that we can. That doesn't mean we're trusting in man because Scripture says, Jeremiah 17:5, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. We have to recognize that ultimately the only real permanent solution is a spiritual solution. But that doesn't mean that there aren't secular decisions and secular solutions for secular problems because I believe that there are. It's just like if you've got a problem at your bank and you've got an overdraft, the solution is to, first of all, pray about the situation, but then get some money into the bank to correct the overdraft problem and, if necessary, get a second job. That's how it works. We pray to the Lord because we believe that the Lord controls history, but we don't only pray to the Lord. We also have to start the lawnmower and go out and cut the grass if we're praying for the problem of overgrown grass to be solved. So just because we get involved in politics doesn't mean our ultimate trust is in man because this is what Scripture says. And the contrast is, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope or whose confidence is in the Lord. That's the idea of confidence. Our, our confident expectation is the Lord. For he that is the man who trusts in the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes. That's when adversity comes into life, when pressure comes. We will not be afraid because we know that no matter what happens, God is going to take care of us, even if that means that he's going to take us home. We, not, we, we will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will, uh, nor will it cease, that is, the believer cease from yielding fruit. We do not live in a good world. When I was talking to this one speaker at the end, I said, you've talked about so many different things in 45 minutes. I'm trying to figure out how, how to uh, summarize it. And he said, it's real simple. There is a hell, and we're living in it. But there's hope. For the believer, there is hope. Let me take you to one more passage before we get into Romans, and that is at the end of Habakkuk. At the end of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets. Coming after Nahum and coming just before Zephaniah, between Nahum and Zephaniah. Habakkuk is a great book to preach through one, one of these days. I've gone through it in one shot before. It is the realization on the part of the prophet Habakkuk of his need to focus on the Lord alone and that he will have joy no matter what the external circumstances will be. He begins by asking a question. He looks out on the scene of, 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 of the culture in Judah in approximately 605, 606, 607 B.C. And he says, Lord, these people are pagan, they're perverted, they're twisted, they're, 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 they're antagonistic to you, they're idolatrous. Why won't you punish them? And the Lord said, guess what, Habakkuk? I've got these people over here. The Iranians, oh, oops, the Chaldeans, same part of the world, okay? The Chaldeans. And they're on the way. And they're going to take care of the problem. 
And Habakkuk said, what? How can you use those horrible people? They're worse than we are. How can you use them to punish him? And so in the uh, chapter you get um, a meditation on God's answer to uh, I mean, God's, God's answer to uh, Habakkuk's objection. And then Habakkuk, after meditating on it, prays through it. He recognizes that God's, God's right to rule his creation uh, is absolute and that he will judge who he needs to judge. And when he comes to the end, because like most of us, as judgment is coming, Habakkuk is saying, I'm going to lose all my security. I'm going to lose all my comfort. I'm going to lose everything that I like in life. What in the world am I going to do? And that's why he's so upset, because if the Chaldeans come, he's going to lose everything. And this is how he ends. Verse 17 of chapter 3. Though the fig tree may not blossom, in other words, if there's no food at the grocery store, nor fruit on the vines, there's no paycheck. Though the labor of the olive may fail, There's no paycheck because there's no jobs. And the fields yield no food. The grocery stores can't get any food because there's nothing being produced by the farmers. Though the flock may be cut off from the fold. Right now our beef herd is at its lowest since the early 50s, and beef prices are about to skyrocket. It's a good time to go on on a diet where you're not spending as much money on red meat. So basically what he summarizes in verse 17 is though I lose all the details of life, I lose security, I lose my comfort factor, I don't have the house I want to live in, I can't drive the car I want to drive, I don't even have a car because everything's been lost because the economy's been turned upside down. Though I lose everything near and dear to me, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. That is what we talk about when we talk about doctrinal orientation and when we talk about a grace orientation. When we talk about the problem-solving devices, that's what we're focusing on. And it's because we have a love for the Lord, personal love for God. All of those are mixed into the application of that verse. I will rejoice. That's the last of the problem-solving devices, sharing the happiness of God. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, not the military. The military was never Israel's strength in the Old Testament. They did not have, they didn't defeat the Canaanites because they had a superior technology. They did not defeat the Canaanites because they had a superior officer corps. They did not defeat the Canaanites because they had a superior non-commissioned officer corps. They did not defeat the Canaanites because they uh, were superior in numbers. They defeated the Canaanites because they trusted in the Lord. The battle is the Lord's. And unless there is a spiritual solution, all of these other solutions are are simply temporary fixes on a flat tire. They're just patches. You've got to replace the tire. And what I mean by that is there has to be a change of heart in the culture or we are doomed. But as believers, that's not bad because our joy is not in the culture. Our joy is in the Lord. And then Habakkuk concludes, the Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high hills. 
If you're a Texan, you have to be careful with that because you might want to pronounce that high heels, but you have to articulate. He will make me walk on my high hills. That is a, these are expressions of joy. And so he recognizes joy is not in the details of life. It not, it's not in the things we have. It's not even in the people around us. It's not in things going the way we would like them to go. Our joy needs to be oriented to the plan of God. And when we're oriented to the plan of God and understand that he rules history, when we're aligned with his plan, with our mental attitude, then we have joy no matter what the circumstances might be. So things aren't rosy, but that's okay. We have a God who's in control of everything, and we can have an influence in this nation because we're believers, and we can be involved in the problem-solving uh, problem-solving areas that have been established by the government and by our Constitution, and we can have an impact, and that's part of our responsibility. But a greater part of our responsibility is as believers, we need to really know the Word because one of the things that's coming out of Ukraine, if we ever get to the point where we're like Ukraine, it is a great opportunity for believers who know the Word. And that's one thing that's coming out again and again and again is these people that have been trained by Jim Myers and by others in Ukraine are having an impact on the people. There is a great receptivity to the gospel now and to the truth. And not only is there a great receptivity to the truth, but these people that, are, that have come out of that ministry and have been studying the word for the last 10, 12, 15 years have a stability in their souls in the midst of this uh, th- Russian threat that is on their, their front door. And that's why we need to be in Bible class all the time, why we need to be studying the Word, keeping our focus off of the details of life and onto what really matters. Okay, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. did I wrap up last time? Did I get the right? There are so many things open here. Okay, let me make sure I have the right lesson here. Okay, I do. Okay. We stopped here at Romans. I think last time we stopped at Romans 12. Uh, 1216, going through various principles related to Christian life. Verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Basically, I think a lot of what is developed in verses 9 through 21 has to do with some form of the expression of love, either impersonal love for all mankind or personal love for God. Uh, and this is a tough subject for a lot of us to focus on. Loving one another is great when the one another's we're loving are lovable, when they're nice, when they're clean, when they've had a shower. But it's hard to love the unlovable. It's hard to express this kind of love with people who are obnoxious, with people who are not physically attractive, and by that I don't mean simply looking good, uh, but there are people who have myriads other problems because maybe they don't bathe or they don't 
dress in clean clothes or any number of other factors, and it's easy to dismiss them. But there's not a qualification in these commands, and we have to understand what it means to love because it doesn't have that kind of simplistic, superficial, shallow, emotive meaning that most people think. Love means doing the right thing, the best thing for the object of love. But that presupposes that you're able to understand that value, what is best, what is right. It's not what's right for you. It's not what's right for me. Um, Too often what you see in marriage ceremonies when two people are declaring their love for one another, uh, what the hidden text says is that I love you and I'm going to give you the opportunity to love me back for the rest rest of my life and make me feel Uh, just the way you've always made me feel for the rest of your life. And this is your great opportunity to do that. We often come from a selfish set of standards, not an objective set of standards, which is what the Word of God gives us. So when we do that, we're able to get out of ourselves. Remember, our basic problem is that we're self-absorbed. That's the orientation of the sin nature. We come into life thinking it's all about me, And unless the rod of correction drives that far from us through parental training, and unless we are taught from establishment truth and from the Word of God, the problem that we'll discover is that when we reach our adolescent years, it's all going to be about me, and we're going to get in a lot of trouble. And then when we get into our 20s and 30s, we're going to have a lot of problems in our marriages and in our jobs because we still think it's all about me. And the only way that we can truly, genuinely uh, avoid doing everything in life out of the pursuit of self-interest is to understand God's plan and purpose for our life as an individual believer and then to start living in light of that. Uh, verse 15, as I looked at last time in summary, we're to, that in that sense, we can have genuine, true compassion for other people. We can understand with empathy what they are going through. We can rejoice with them when there are wonderful things in their life, and we can weep with them when there are terrible things in their life. So we learn to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And the word there for weeping is not just being upset and crying a little bit, but someone who is so overwhelmed by adversity and disasters in life that they are wailing in distress over the things that have taken place. Then in verse 16, we read, Be of the same mind toward one another. Be of the same mind toward one another means that we are to treat everyone from the same framework. And that comes from the Word of God. We are to all treat one another uh, as a fellow believer in the royal family of God. We are not to prefer one over the other as if one has a a higher value than the other. So we are to think the same way. This is the word phreneo here, which means to be wise or to think. So we are to think objectively toward one another. But the only way we can think objectively is if we have an objective standard within our soul. And that comes from the Word of God. And unfortunately, there are too many people in our culture today that because they do not have the Word of God, the only thing that they operate on is their own self-interest. They are self-absorbed. They may disguise it in numerous ways, but ultimately the only motivation in their life is their own self-interest. 
So they have to learn how to think differently. Remember back in uh, Romans 12, uh, 1, or 12, 2, Paul said, don't be conformed to the world. The world operates on a self-centered, self-absorbed modus operandi, and we are not to be pressed into the mold of the world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, the renewing of our thinking. So in verse 16, he's expressing one of the ways in which we do that. We are to have the same thinking toward one another. Now, one another doesn't refer to people outside the body of Christ. This is talking about uh, how we are to relate to one another in the body of Christ to fellow believers, no matter what their relationship is to us. We're the same mind, a mind of objectivity toward one another. We're not to, Paul often teaches by contrast. He will state positively what we should do and then the negative of it. Often he does this in other areas where he teaches positively what Christians believe, negatively what pagans believe. So here he's talking about contrasting behavior and thought here. We're to have the same mind toward one another. We're not to set our mind on high things or lofty things, hupselos, which has to do with things that are uh, unrealistic, operating out of pride and arrogance. So we're not to set our minds on arrogant goals and arrogant objectives. But then he goes on to say we are to associate with the humble. Now, this is a difficult passage to uh, interpret the word there, uh, translated uh, humbled, or associate rather, is the word uh, sunapago, which has the idea of being carried off or associated with, with uh, something. And so it really has the idea that we are to not be uh, <coughs> carried off or seduced by, excuse me, that's the uh, word uh, that, that has to do with not being carried off or seduced with false humility, and we're not to be wise in our own opinion. Then we come to verse 17. Verse 17 continues to develop the idea that started back in verse 9, talking about love, let love be without hypocrisy, abhorring, excuse me, abhorring what is evil. So he says, now repay no one evil for evil. When people do bad things to us, when people do things that hurt us, when people disappoint us, when people betray us, we are not to react in kind. As my mother used to say, two wrongs don't make a right. Uh, a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. And so often when we retaliate in any way, shape, or form, it is wrong. It is operating out of our own vindictiveness, trying to gain justice instead of leaving it in the Lord's hands. So this is not simply stated here in Romans 12:17. It is also stated in other passages, such as 1 Thessalonians 5:15a, where Paul says, "See that no one repays another another with evil for evil." And so, in the first case, in Romans 12:17, we have a present active participle, and here we have another one of these uh, independent participles in Romans 12, used with an imperatival sense. In 1 Thessalonians 5.15, the imperative is in the word see. 
It is a present active imperative of hara'o, and he's directing them to observe and watch over the behavior in the congregation to make sure that no one repays another evil for evil. So that the verb there for repay, same verb, apodidomi, is in an aorist subjunctive, which is put there because that's the correct Greek syntax after you have a purpose clause. So it's still an imperative. We are, to, we are not to repay evil for evil. Instead, Romans twelve seventeen says that we are to have regard for good things in the sight of all men. That word have regard is the word on the right side of the screen, pra-na-e-o. Now, no-e-o is the verb form of the noun nous, N-O-U-S. Uh, noeo means to think, so pra noeo with the prefix pro indicating beforehand means to think about something, think about your actions ahead of time, to uh, take care of things beforehand, to take care for something ahead of time, or to think about it. In other words, don't just go through life reacting but think about things ahead of time. So we are to have regard or to think ahead of time, planning a course of action related to good things in the sight of all men. So we are, and that that qualifies it there. It's not just talking about believers. It's not one another. This applies to how the believers should even treat unbelievers. We are to treat them in... uh, treat them well, treat them with impersonal love, even when they are undeserving. That is an expression of God's grace. If you don't understand grace, you can't understand love. And that's something that ought to be pounded into every teenager before they ever get old enough to think they're in love. If you don't understand grace, you can never understand genuine love because for love to function, it must function on grace. Because within any relationship, there are going to be good things and there are going to be bad things. There are going to be successes and there are going to be failures. And we have to learn to forgive one another. And if we can't, and, and the principle for forgiving one another flows out of grace, undeserved merit, undeserved favor. Now, this is the principle of not doing evil to others in return for evil is also expressed in other verses, such as 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, where we're told not to behave rudely, or excuse me, love does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not self-absorbed. See, we have a love crisis in this country. Some politicians love to talk about crisis. The more we have a crisis of arrogance and self-absorption, according to the Scripture, the less people can love. Love, true love, doesn't seek its own. It's not self-oriented. But the more we have a culture that is based on self-absorption and arrogance, the less it's able to genuinely love. And so they substitute substitute sex, they substitute drugs, they substitute... uh, all kinds of things. They substitute pleasure uh, for love, but they don't truly understand what love is. They substitute emotion and sentimentality for love, but they don't understand what that is. All of that just feeds a person's own uh, self-aggrandizement, and it feeds their own uh, their own lust patterns. So love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, 
and it thinks no evil. So when you're operating on biblical love, then you're not thinking evil about anyone, no matter what they have done to you or no matter how much they might deserve it. Then in verse 18, Paul develops this even more, not only... Not only are we not to repay evil for evil, but we are to live peaceably with all men. This is expressing the positive. The negative was do not repay evil for evil. The po- that's the negative. Positive is have regard for good things in the sight of all men. More positive, further development, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, the point here is developed from the conditional clause. The Bible is realistic. There are some people that just will never want to have a relationship with us. There are some people that because you're a Christian, they won't have anything to do with you. There are some people who, because of your personality, won't have anything to do with you. There are some people who, for any variety of reasons, don't want to have anything to do with you. And you can't change that, and I can't change that. What Paul is talking about here is he qualifies it with a first-class condition if it is possible. Now, first-class condition indicates the assumption of truth for the sake of argument. It, It indicates the idea that something is possible. It doesn't always mean if and it's true. It's meaning if and it's something is likely uh, in fact, uh, though, though each of the conditional clauses uh, expressed in Greek have certain primary meanings, they can all express more or less a, a, a condition of uncertainty. But here he's saying, if it is possible, and in some sense it can be possible if we are trusting in the Lord. It may not be possible right away, but we have to remember with God all things are possible He's the one who makes it possible. It may take years to solve some uh, personal conflicts that have occurred. This is especially true within certain situations within families. Uh, It it may take years to to resolve some of those conflicts because they are so deep-seated and so personal and so emotional. But Paul says, if it is possible. Now, the other thing about the word dunitas here that's translated possible is that it emphasizes volition. It's up to our volition to try to make it possible, to try to resolve conflicts. But some people won't resolve the conflict. Some people are unwilling to admit failure. Some people are unwilling to admit fault. Some people are unwilling to admit that they have a problem. See, this is the whole principle underlying 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins... See, in in the resolution of a break that occurs in the rapport with God, God didn't do anything wrong. We did. So what do we have to do in order to resolve the conflict and restore peace with God? We have to admit our wrongdoing. There can't be a resolution. God's not going to say, well, you know, you're really a nice person. I know you're just a baby believer. You're really a stupid believer, and that's not your fault, but I'm just going to overlook it this time. God doesn't do that. God says there's a, there's a basis for resolution, and that is that the sin has to be dealt with, and the sin's not dealt with by overlooking it. Now, a lot of people like to live in a world of fantasy where they don't really have to deal with the difficult conflict issues, and they don't want to talk about them because it's messy, it's emotional, 
and it's hard to do. And sometimes people just don't want to admit their own failure. So, okay, let's just, let's just go on and act like it never happened. But that is merely putting a Band-Aid on the problem, and sooner or later uh, it's, it won't heal, and that, that scab that grows over the wound is just going to be pulled loose, and you're going to have the problem all over again. So uh, we, there's a recognition here that sometimes it's not possible because some people just don't want to do what's necessary to live in peace because they don't want to deal with the sin that's the cause of the problem. So Paul recognizes that if it's possible, as much as depends on you, don't let it be your fault that there's a breach here. Let it clearly be the other person's fault. You've done everything you can, but they're the ones who have to take the next step, and they're the ones that have to uh, make the admission of guilt. As po- much as possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. The word there for peaceable is the verb erinuo, which means to have peace. It's a present active participle. Again, as we've seen in the Greek grammar in these verses, Paul is using adjectives with an imperatival force, and he's using participles with an imperatival force. So there is a command here that we are to live peaceably with all men. The word there for men is anthropos, not aner. Aner is the word that, although it can mean mankind, it usually means the males, and anthropos means uh, mankind, humanity, with everyone. So live peaceably with everyone. Now, how do we do this? This is what's difficult. So I want to review this a few times. I've had a couple of questions on this because I was covering this in the First Thessalonians uh, series when I'm, when I'm absent. But we have to understand God has given us certain problem-solving devices What that means is when there's a challenge in life, that term, problem-solving devices, grew out of a military background and a military idiom. Uh, When you go on an FTX, a field training exercise, as a commander, whether you're a non-commissioned officer or officer, you'll be presented with a problem. And that problem is you'll be faced with some sort of challenge, some sort of difficulty that you have to resolve uh, using the tools that you've been given in your training. So as in the Christian life, we're going to face certain situations. It may be some guy that cuts us off in traffic. It may be a, a family member that rejects us. It might be a financial problem. It might be unemployment. It could be any number of different situations, but we have to face it on the basis of the Word of God. So it's a test in terms of what we've learned in uh, Bible class. Now, the Apostle John in 1 John uses three different terms to refer to different stages in spiritual growth. The first is spiritual childhood, technon, and I relate these to five basic spiritual skills that we have to learn and become adept at in order to get past things. It starts with confession, because if we're out of fellowship, then we're just going to be doing everything in the power of the sin nature. So the first thing we have to do is make sure that we're walking by this. We're going to be walking by the Spirit that we're in fellowship with God, so we confess our sins. The next thing that we have to do is we have to start walking by the Spirit. Now, I use the two abbreviations there, filling of the Spirit, 
But filling of the Spirit is a passive concept. We're to be filled by the Spirit. It's a passive verb in Ephesians 5.18. The positive active command is given in in, uh, Galatians 5.16 that we are to walk by means of the Spirit. It's active. We have to, from the instant we're restored to fellowship, we have to start walking by the Spirit. Trouble is a lot of people trip right away and they're back out of fellowship, and all they do is they bounce in and out of fellowship. We have to stay in fellowship. That's the whole concept of abiding in Christ, the Scripture uses. So we have to learn to walk by the Spirit, walk in dependence of the Spirit, at which time he fills us with his Word. And so we then have to learn the Word uh, in terms of the faith rest drill, We learn to trust the Word. We learn to trust God. We depend upon His Word, and we claim those promises. We mix our faith with the promises of God, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. This is combined with grace orientation. We understand the grace of God. As we learn promises, we usually learn something about God's grace, and we have to learn that God protects us not on the basis of who we are, what we've done, but on the basis of His Uh, unconditional love for us, and that is grace. And then the last is doctrinal orientation. We have to align our thinking to the Word of God. Now, faith, rest, drill, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation all work together in tandem. Uh, The faith, rest, drill focuses our attention upon God's Word. Doctrinal orientation focuses our attention on God's Word. Grace orientation uh, focuses our attention upon God's provision of every resource we need to face any and every problem in life. These are foundational to all of the advanced spiritual skills. If you don't master grace orientation, you can never learn to love. If you don't master doctrinal orientation, you can never learn to love. This is foundational. So in spiritual adolescence, as we develop in the first five, we begin to realize that we're living for another reason other than personal pleasure. We're living for the destiny that God has for us, and that is an eternal destiny to rule and reign with Christ so that we're living today in light of eternity. That's our personal sense of our eternal destiny. When teenagers get out of adolescence, they begin to, to postpone gratification, and that's called maturity. And they're beginning to, li- to, to, to postpone things and live not just in light of what I'm going to do today, but in light of what's going to come a year or two or 10 or 15 or 20 down the road. So this is where you start making that transition into maturity, and this is where a lot of Christians fail and fall out. Then we get into the advanced spiritual skills, personal love for God, where we learn to love God because we were oriented to his word. You can't really love somebody you don't know. Now, that doesn't mean we can't love him the way a child loves a parent. But in terms of a mature love, that only comes as we grow to a certain point in our spiritual growth. Then we have an impersonal love for all mankind, which doesn't mean it's, it's distant. It doesn't mean it's not passionate. It doesn't mean it's not personal. It's that we don't know the person, necessarily have to have a relationship with the person we're loving. It can be the person at the checkout stand. It can be the other person driving down the highway. It can be uh, just anybody, somebody we're talking to on the telephone. We don't have to have a personal relationship with them in order to love them. And then the third is our occupation with Christ, and these three go together. 
and they feed off of each other and they interact with each other. And when we're truly occupied with Christ and have personal love for God, then the result of that is going to be a sharing of the happiness with God as we find in James chapter 1, verse 2. Now a chart, I'm going to wrap up in just a minute, but I wanted to get through the next two slides. The chart that we're all familiar with is this chart where the left side expresses our positional truth, our position in Christ, the absolute, whereas the chart on the right are the temporal realities. We're filled by the Spirit, we walk by the Spirit, but we can sin and we go out of fellowship and the only way to have restored fellowship is to confess our sin and then we're back in fellowship. But the question comes, how do we stay in fellowship? Well, that's the purpose of those spiritual skills. So I develop them this way. Remember, these are not dynamic. They're not all, uh, you, don't, you don't learn them one at a time like this. You learn them in a messy, dynamic sequence in life. But if you put them like this in a circle, your basic problem-solving devices, your personal sense of eternal destiny, personal love for God, and personal love for all mankind, occupation with Christ, and sharing the happiness of God, that describes the circle. How do you stay inside that circle? By using these spiritual skills. When you don't use these, a spiritual skill, you're going to go out of fellowship. You stay in fellowship. You continue to abide in Christ by using the spiritual skills. If you fail, then you have to confess your sin, and you're back in fellowship. You're back inside the circle, and you can continue to walk in the light. So what we're focusing on in these, this passage in, uh, in Romans in terms of learning how to live peaceably with all men is learning how to function with, by utilizing the personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind, and our occupation with Christ. So next time we're going to come back and we're going to develop the doctrine of what it means to live at peace with all mankind. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be challenged by the realization that we live in a very flawed uh, world that is dominated, it seems, more and more by evil, a world that it seems more and more threatening. But rather than looking at this as a defeat, rather than looking at this as difficulty and being overwhelmed by it, we need to recognize that with you all things are possible and that we can handle any and every situation in life. And you uh, put us here for a very purpose, and that is to be uh, missionaries to the world, to have a mission to the world, to be ambassadors from the eternal throne of God to everyone in this world, uh, living out the gospel in our lives and being a faithful witness of your grace. Father, we pray that we might be uh, challenged, responsive to the challenge to do that, and that we, we might learn to grow to the point where we can truly, consistently exercise uh, grace towards everyone, impersonal love towards everyone, and that we can put our, our focus, our objective in life in terms of serving you above everything else. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.